0: Hello and welcome to All Nurses Are Beautiful because all nurses are beautiful and yet complicit in a for profit, unjust, inequitable healthcare system. Uh, today's guest is Michael Mark Cohen, author of this beautiful book, Conspiracy of Capital, also an associate professor of American studies and African American studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome. Did I miss anything? Is there. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah, On Twitter, you're a little bit Bill Haywood, and you uh, also curate a, a site dedicated to Art Young, the political cartoons of Art Young. Um, what was that site?
1: Yeah, it's called uh, uh, cartooningcapitalism.com. And yeah, it, it, it collects uh, socialist and radical cartoons from the late 19th and early 20th century, but it, particularly the work of uh, Art Young, Arthur Henry Young, was probably American socialism's most well-known and deeply beloved cartoonist. So if you have any interest in radical visualizations of anti-capitalist propaganda, it's a one-stop shop.
0: Yeah, I do. Absolutely. So I'll tell you why. So how I came about your book, I read this article about racist language, essentially. A very interesting article. I've dug a little deeper. I found this book, Conspiracy of Capital, uh, and it really dug into uncovering what I feel like is, is kind of invisible that we are all feeling with inequity and inequality. Um, so starkly in our faces. So I'll, I'll thank you for the book. Oh, thank you for reading it. So that's uh, you know, but right. only have value if they have readers. Yeah. Um, and so I guess what it, as a nurse, and this is a podcast for nurses, for everyone but but what I really try to do is is um highlight the the shadow curriculum of nursing what is not addressed in nursing school and what is not addressed uh um officially anywhere in the healthcare system, which is the for profit the profit motive that underlies uh, uh medicine and a dual loyalty that we all that we all have to one the patients we care for. And to our employer, that conspiracy of capital that you that you talk about in the book um, is hidden. But the power does lie at the very top uh, uh, of shareholders seeking to profit from the from the health and ill health of Americans.
1: Yes. I mean, indeed. I mean, you know, you're. Uh, understanding of what is required of nurses. On the, I, I love the way you describe this as a kind of shadow curriculum that you learn the kind of medical training that is necessary, but uh, how to understand the system and what the place of cops are in hospitals and what the role yeah. of you know immigration services in hospitals and emergency rooms are and how to navigate the sort of power structure is one of the kind of great complexities, not just uh, you know of anyone who is. Motivated to come into a caring industry in which they all of a sudden find themselves bound up in economic and state political power that often, you know, they're not trained in; they can only come to understand, you know, in, on a day by day, on the job basis. Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, my own understanding of what I, I talk about in terms of the conspiracy of capital is to also recognize that power doesn't just lie at the top of the system; it, it also uh, is to be found overwhelmingly in the coordinated, collectivized efforts of the people who make the system work, that without nurses, hospitals could not function. Without nurses, there are no emergency rooms. You know, nurses have tremendous political, economic, cultural, and social power um, that, you know, at times they wield with enormous effectiveness. And I think that that's, you know, in in the sense of the use of the term conspiracy as it is you know understood as I came to understand it through historical research is like that's the kind of original form in American labor history the the use of the conspiracy laws in particular um, criminalized labor unions and the fear that um, you know big employers. Of, and hospital firms have of doctor strikes, nurses strikes, organized labor and those kinds of workplaces is, you know, is really enormous because it, it not only threatens their profits, but it threatens their reputation. It threatens their ability to draw funds from the government, all of those kinds of things. So, I mean, I, I use this, you know, properly, the understanding of conspiracy in a kind of dual sense. You know, on the one hand, it is the kind of criminal behavior of corporate monopolies um, and their allies in the state, uh, but it also speaks quite explicitly to the power of ordinary people to work together collectively for their own and indeed the broader social benefit.
0: Yeah, definitely. And in the book, you you write that we live in an age in which the state's power over capital and hence most of our daily working conditions is at a historical low, while the state's power over the individual is at an all-time high, which, in my understanding, is makes that collective action extremely difficult. And all
1: the more necessary, yes. It makes it much harder, but also much more necessary, right? As all of these traditional job titles... Um, that had previously gained one access to kind of middle class status are increasingly uh, proletarianized. They're increasingly automated, increasingly streamlined. Weighed there's downward pressure on wages for all sorts of middle class job conditions. Um, and yeah, and then when you know, and this is something that you know doctors are experiencing and specialists are experiencing and the like. Whereas the nurses who you know um, have seen this happen to them over centuries, right? That this process of nursing being the kind of, and women, uh, in particular, I mean, we know yes. the ways in which these jobs are gendered, um, typically, t- typically gendered, of course, you know, not always, there are large numbers of male nurses and they do the valuable work. Um, and they, uh, but at the same time, they are experiencing a kind of downward economic mobility that comes with, um, the demand for greater efficiency out of healthcare, the demand for greater profitability out of healthcare, that pre- pushes this kind of downward pressure, um, and you see this in all sorts of different ways. That the the state has all kinds of means of breaking strikes, or indeed corporations have all kinds of means of breaking strikes. We see this happening um, with Starbucks. You know, that uh, all of these Starbucks employees are getting fired for trying to organize and trying to unionize. And, you know, Howard Schultz knows he's the CEO of Starbucks. uh, Mm -hmm. He knows that, you know, he's going to get away with it. He's going to be able to fire these people. And the National Labor Relations Board is going to slap him on the wrist a couple of years from now. Uh, And he will have thwarted a major unionization campaign. And, And we see these efforts. So when nurses do try and unionize. Um, and things like that. There's enormous money and effort expended on trying to disorganize them, to break the unions, to prevent them from being able to build um, working class power. And there's very little that the state seems to want to do to support workers in their ability to, to organize. The state just seems to be vastly more interested uh, in keeping wages down and doing what um, corporations find necessary. Um, at the same time, You know, I mean, I think we see this also. I mean, the line that you cite, I was really thinking in particular about something like NAFTA um, and, you know, global trade, the sort of old debates we used to have about international trade or, you know, where, um, you know, money and capital can just flow wherever it wants to across whatever kind of border. Um, But as money can flow freely, wildly from across borders, um, people overwhelmingly are being apprehended. So while we have means to move money wherever it needs to go, we're building a wall on the southern border. We're hiring large numbers of INS agents and ICE agents and um, to prevent the flow of people in and out of the country, right? And this is happening in Europe. This is happening um, you know, in the Mediterranean. It's happening on the southern border of the United States. It's happening in Asia. You know, money goes wherever it wants to, but people are stuck. Um, and labor, in particular, workers are stuck. And so I think, you know, we see this imbalance between... The freedom of capital and the um, increasing uh increasingly fixed and downward trajectory of working people pretty much wherever we look uh, apart from you know these efforts to unionize and to organize people
0: and I see that as a bedside nurse mm-hmm. uh, working in northern california i 'm actually very lucky to be a part of one of the strongest union nursing unions in the in the country um And yet the leaders of the union are not uh, compensated to be a part of that union. Um, They are in certain ways, but there is so much work to be done that the employer goes out of their way to not, to not, you know, not to reimburse financially, but the work gets done against all those pressures Uh, in the same way that the, that the, the corporation may not uh, provide wages in a fair and timely manner that is not not uh, policed and yet Mm. uh, a worker is policed in how they collect their their money in an extreme way
1: yeah no, I, I, you know, I, I am a fan of the California Nurses Association. I tend to, I vote the way, for the most part, on ballot measures the way they suggest to me. Like they do, they put out good voter education guides. They, um, and and I will also just say that, um, I am blessed not to have spent the very much time in uh, California hospitals, but I, I have always been well cared for and felt the passion and compassion of the working people in particularly the nursing staffs of these hospitals. I'm endlessly and forever grateful for them and to them, which is why, of course, any podcast that calls itself All Nurses Are Beautiful is something I would snap to attention to gladly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what's so interesting, that the compassion, uh, the beauty uh, of so many people in the healthcare system, almost to a person that you interact with as a patient, are there for really beautiful reasons in my experience. And yet it's all within a system that is extracting uh, profits. And so it makes it that much more difficult to find the perpetrator uh, 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 of this. And that's, I think, why I really was called by your book, thinking about the systemic um, pressures, even if there's not an evil uh, mastermind, of which there are CEOs and share shareholders, but even outside of that, there is a, a legal system that that uh, affords you know personhood to to corporations and all, and all these things. Um, so how do you you know in the face of of experiencing that compassion and also combating the system and how do you do both?
1: Yeah, it's an enormously difficult problem, but I I would submit that like there are few people in a better position to launch this project to make these kinds of claims, then the, you know, nurses, teachers, firefighters, definitely not cops, uh, you know, cause they're, I mean, you look at police unions and what they are and what they do. They are not the same yeah. organization. They do not belong in the labor movement. They're not in the yeah. same position, um, as teachers. And I mean, cops exist to break strikes, not to actually join the, the, you know, among many other things that police do that one of their. Yeah. their urban functions is to break up labor movements, to destroy, to break strikes, and to, to ensure that working people uh, go to work. Frankly, yeah. Um, but I do. I mean, just to think about you know the the structural role of people like nurses, teachers, firefighters, uh, social workers, and others. Uh, these are are people who really do on a daily basis have to come into contact with um, our citizens you know, who are, are dropped out the bottom of the inequality system, right? Who are experiencing the most acute crises of their lives, who are in need of care, compassion, aid, assistance, comfort, all of those sorts of things. And to the degree to which those job descriptions often find themselves exploited, and they are exploited, uh, a large ma- measure of it is they're being exploited because of their, those characteristics that we laud them for. For their compassion, for their care, for their love of children, their love of love of the elderly, you know, I mean, the, the, all of these sorts of of things, the motivations that lead someone into a job description like nursing or a home health aid. I mean, these are just unsung heroes of a a broken civilization who clearly don't get the the not just the remuneration but the respect and desire and and. and admiration that they desire, not uh, that they deserve, excuse me, um, in part because, right, they are they do it because they know it's necessary. They do the work because they know that they serve the cause of humanity. And because of that, right, they they can be easily exploited. And I I just I it's always such a crime to me. Um which is why I think you know when you you look at you know Strikes by nurses and teachers and flight attendants and all of these other people that ge- that genuinely make the world go round, um, without whom everything would grind to an immediate halt. Um, you you sort of you know you you can see what side someone's on, right? Present somebody with a teacher's strike or a nurse's strike, and you really see. Whose side they're on. <laughs> you know, are yeah. you are, I and I'm not even talking about the employees. I'm talking about, you know, John Q public, right? The citizens who are like, oh well, it's just, you know, when the bus drivers or the BART workers or any you know, the train conductors go on strike, well, that's just really inconvenient. You're just inconveniencing yeah. me. As if, right, your inconvenience is somehow more significant than you know, the, the the potential collapse of the healthcare system on the backs of people being exploited because of their love of humanity. I mean, it's just, it, the, it doesn't get much clearer, <laughs> you know, in terms of whose side you're actually on, the kind of, the, you know, we, we used to think of it in terms of, you know, being on the right side of history. And I, I, I don't know that we necessarily, we, you know, the, the sort of Marxist socialists don't necessarily use that language so much anymore. But to me, it's just like, Are you on the side of the people who really do make the world work? Or are you on the side of profits and the comfort and convenience that flow downward to you
0: through them and out of them? That's right. And to to valorize the the professions of healthcare, nurse, um, teacher, is to then exploit those people that work in those professions when it comes time to... To strike, so nurses are not taking care of their patients when they right. strike.
1: Mm-hmm. Teachers aren't taking care of their students, right?
0: right. They are, <laughs> <laughs> they are.
1: Like without the yeah. strike, without the pay, without the the you know the the conditions in it. I, I come from a family of school teachers, right? So yeah. uh, both of my parents were school teachers, and and they were in a union. Now it wasn't something that we really talked about so much as it was just the. It allowed us to have a middle class. I had a middle class upbringing uh, because my parents' teachers' unions brought in, ensured that they brought in enough money that I could be raised in a middle class family and go to college and do all of those things. Right. Um, you know, teachers who are squeezed to the last dime, who have to drive forty-five minutes to a school because they can't afford to live in the district in which they work, and these are the same phenomenons, of course, happening to nurses as well. You're getting lower quality teaching, you're getting lower quality childcare, you're getting lower quality medicine, you're getting lower quality healthcare um, because you're squeezing these people. Um, yeah, and so it's, it's not a mystery why the American. Uh, healthcare system has the highest costs and the lowest quality health outcomes. It's not a mystery. Like we know why that is. (laughs) It just remains that if you're rich, you can pay for good healthcare outcomes. And somehow that is, that's sufficient that our society believes that that's all that's necessary. That poor people deserve to be unhealthy and rich people can get boob jobs
0: on demand. A hundred percent. And There's that aspect of disrupting the system creates crisis in a way. And it's getting over that crisis into a a healing of the system. And you talk about in the book that we face so many potential phobias and disasters that vie for the amygdala's attention. We have to believe that it's still possible to know where the fight is and how much there is to be gained by taking it up. And as a nurse, you get through your shift. You you attend to to disasters and, and urgencies on a moment to moment, day to day basis. Confronting an entire system that you have so little control over mm-hmm. uh, seems impossible. Yeah. So yeah. you were involved in occupy the Occupy movement. You've been incredibly um, active, as far as I can understand. So how do you go from Recognizing the problems on a big scale to
1: affecting change. <laughs> I mean, like, that is the that is you know the the how to change the world question. Um, I know. You, you know, I was <laughs> expecting this maybe at the end of the conference, but like, yes, yeah, so like how do you how do you do that? Um, You know, I mean, the I, I there's no simple formula, right? Yeah. Um, there are many incredible variety of ways of approaching this problem. The simple answer I think is organizing, right? Is yeah. organizing that, you know, that you, the need to sort of organize one's community to eat, you know, and, um, organize your neighborhood for purposes of mutual aid, organize your workplace for purposes of unionization, strikes, collective action, organizing your, um, you know, I- people into a kind of political coalitions and political factions. Um, I tend to think, you know, my, my, my day job, right, I'm a university professor, I'm a historian. Um, my job is to uh, analyze and understand how change happens over time, right? The the understanding of like, how do we read the sources of the past to understand what the stakes are in specific events, specific, uh, the emergence of certain social movements and, and the like. And so what I take it, you know, a, a phrase that I get from uh, an Italian philosopher, Antonio Gramsci, about how that we, you know, we must be committed to the idea of um, the, the, the political change comes through the combination of right pessimism, of the intellect and optimism of the will. Which means that we have to take the most ruthless criticism of the society that we live in and think mm-hmm. about very carefully how our society is structured in dominance around race, around gender, around sexuality, around class, around all of these sorts of things. And analyze you know, the ruthless criticism of every existing thing um, and subject you know, the, the world to this very rigorous analysis so that we can, understanding that the capitalist system is... Uh, An ongoing process of dynamic tension, right? That it's always in movement, it's always in tension. There are always conflicts that emerge through the historical process. That in that process, we can find opportunities to crack the system open, challenge political power, right? Build social movements that can bring real change. So we have to think, we have to study, we have to understand. But we also have to just be willing to make leaps of faith into um, social justice campaigning and organizing, right? The the world was made by, um, and and historical and progressive change is made by people who throw themselves into fights that they don't know the the outcomes of, right? There's to to join a social movement, to join a union, to decide to go on strike is in many ways a kind of leap, you know that. Um, no one knows how these things are going to turn out. You don't know when you sign on for a strike that you're going to win. You don't know that when you, you know, vote for your candidate that that person's going to win. You don't know, but you have to at some point. And this, these are these are never without risk, especially as you work your way down the social ladder. Right, the you know the the poorer. Um, the, you know poor folks people of color uh, you know women in various uh, social circumstances right it's a risky it's not a safe thing to leap into the you know the lo- people for whom the loss of a job is catastrophic is a traumatic experience right you never know so that the you know, if, if you're going to win if this is going to turn out well, And so the bravery of people, of ordinary people who are willing to commit themselves, to commit their time, their energy, um, their futures to the possibility of dramatic and even small scale change. Right? I mean, I feel every hospital that, that in which the nurses unionize is a win for all of us. It's a benefit for all of us. We all gain when nurses have a more stable social home foundation, a stable income foundation. Uh, they're able to do better work. They're able to heal us. Uh, they're able to show better care. So in that sense that um, it is a tremendously risky thing to leap into tr- efforts at social change. You risk all kinds of things. Um, at the same time, it's the only way in which the world is made better, right? We we, we never, uh, Twitter has, as much as, as as addicted to Twitter as I may be or Facebook or any of these things, it has never, it is absolutely thoroughly failed to make the world a better place. Silicon Valley's mantra of, well, we're changing the world, we're changing, yes, for the worst, dramatically for yeah. the worst, in almost every conceivable circumstance. So no one's really going to make the world a better place by tweeting or posting on Facebook where the way you make the world a better place is by binding with other people and leaping into the unknown of possible social transformation. And it is hella risky. It is also quite frankly, the only thing that works.
0: Yeah. It, it's, it sounds like chasing uh discomfort in a way. And I, I see that in nursing as well to be, in my opinion, what a good nurse um, really requires is, is to, control your control your uh, limbic like the amygdala when um, in a in a very uncomfortable situation to the process of somatically uh, uh, becoming comfortable in, in that in that space and it's so easy to to see injustice and to kind of paint it over to rationalize and to retreat into a place of comfort and so that seems to be the work of recognizing the very uncomfortable parts of our society and living in that spot, in that space, and then trying to do something about it. And then you say that the, the, the work is is taken on in this heroic fashion, but often it's a burden that's placed on, on someone that has no, no other options. And as nurses, I think we are generally in a position of relative safety to kind of push back.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I guess like, you know, on the one hand, I'm thinking about, you know, the the leading cause of like miners strikes around the world, not just in the United States are disasters, right? There's a yeah. mine cave in miners are burned alive underground, like horrible deaths and their families then rise up and we have a miner strike in Butte, Montana, or in South Africa or somewhere in China, right? And um, at the same time like i you know your your idea about the and that's where you know the kind of militancy grows out of like workplace safety issues and um the, the profits that uh that are are being siphoned out of a mine that are that should be spent on workplace safety issues things like that. At the same time, you I mean I just think about what nurses have gone through in the last two and a half years in which yeah. I don't I don't want to know how many of them, I mean I do want to know how many of them have died from COVID from all the you know the, the the being a nurse in the middle of a pandemic. I mean you couldn't think of a more dangerous place, especially in those early days where we didn't really know mm-hmm. what the disease was. Was, in which there wasn't enough PPE going around with all those photos, like, I mean, it's how quickly for, we forget, but two and a half years ago, all these photos of nurses wearing garbage bags and you know, wow. really just horrible, you know, that what they had to do in order to keep themselves alive in the middle of this absolutely mysterious, you know, murderous pandemic. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think on the one hand, is it safer to be a nurse than a coal miner? Maybe you know, it probably wasn't, you know, in, you know, in in early 2020, I I can assure Mm -hmm. you it was not. But, you know, I mean, overall, historically speaking, yes, it probably is. But like, you know, in a a certain sense, like strikes, workplace organization comes out of all sorts of reasons on the ground. Very Mm -hmm. rarely are strikes motivated by Someone's abstract desire for socialism, say, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's not usually what where strikes come from. You don't have, have some like a communist nurse who's just like, "We're gonna go on strike because communism." And it's, well, I mean, you might persuade a couple of people, but you're not gonna get the whole floor to go out on that basis. Which you're gonna get the floor to go out on the basis of is you know, all of these other kinds of things, they're stealing our wages, they're not paying us proper overtime, the scheduling system is screwed up. We got this doctor that sexually harasses everyone every time they're on the floor, right? You got like all of these sorts of those kinds of on the ground workplace issues that make the workplace work, that make the workplace effective, that make the workplace safe, all of those kinds of things. That's what motivates people to do this. It's, you know, and and I, I think we also have that sense that says, well, you know, if, if you're not, you know, horribly oppressed, then why, what are you complaining for? And it's like, that's a terrible standard. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's not, that's not a, wait, that's the kind of version that says like anything, anything short of just outright chattel slavery is acceptable in the workplace. Yeah. And that's not true. We know that's not true, right? Uh, I, you know, any time that the necessary labor is undercompensated, people are disrespected, like that's grounds for collective action. That's gl- grounds for, you know, because you don't see a lot of nurses, like the, the idea that like nurses or teachers are somehow being greedy is the yeah. most outrageous, <laughs> you know, I mean, really let's, let's, let's talk about greed. Like where's the, where's the greed, right? I, I It is not right. a nurse that wants to be paid $25 an hour. That's
0: not greed.
1: That's necessity. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you pushing back on my <laughs> in defensive nurses. I guess uh, there's there's the idea of uh, it's, it's very difficult to organize in early days of pandemic whenever there was just a need for PPE and, and pushing yeah. and fighting for this very tangible, uh, very winnable um, fight. And now two and a half years in, continuing to fight against the greed of the system. Which a lot of people are doing, I feel like, just the call to action, recognizing the problem. Um, I guess is is my is my goal with this podcast. Yeah, because it takes a few years as a nurse to be uh, proficient at the at the task, mm-hmm. to be in a in a position to even recognize like the larger social impact uh, of day in day out being in the hospital. Right. I, I the demands are so extensive,
1: right? Let alone just the the medical knowledge that's required. Let alone and training that's required. Let alone the emotional labor. Let alone the kind of intellectual rigor of mapping <laughs> the the economic system of the hospital structure. I mean, I, I so much of it is you know. I just think about the early days of the pandemic, and you're right because there were like nurses did threaten to go on strike. Hmm. You know, and, and th- th- I, I don't know if that was true in California It was certainly true in other parts of the country where there were threatened nurses strikes simply because they're, they're like, la- you know, if this is going to kill me and you're not going to give me what I need to survive, I'm not going to go to work. Yeah. And the necessity there is, I mean, part of what happens in pandemics, I mean, part of what happened in historically speaking in say in 1919, um, with the Spanish, uh, Spanish flu. Uh, the misnamed Spanish flu that came from some pig farm in Iowa, in fact. Um, but uh, part of what happens in pandemics is when doctors and nurses themselves start succumbing to the disease and the hospitals themselves become breeders of disease, uh, you, you, the, the, the pandemic runs away, right? It, it just gets out of control. And that's how... Society collapses, right? It's not Mm -hmm. just you know how oh you know there, there there aren't enough ventilators and things like that. It's like when when the nurses are unprotected, when the nurses can't do their job safely, then the pandemic can truly just ignite. And when nurses and doctors start dying of the disease, then what is there to stop it? right? They are right. The, the guardians on the wall, they are the protectors of our society as a whole. And if they can't be protected from this, then they can't protect us. And that kind of, you know, we, it, fortunately we didn't get to that place. Um, although we got really, really damn close and I, mm. it had so, it has so much to do with, the greed of hospital systems, right? I mean, I don't you know you know this far better than I do, but you know every empty bed in a hospital is a lost revenue stream. So hospitals don't have um what they call surge capacity, right to deal with um you know namely just a bunch of empty beds so that when a pandemic does happen or some disaster strikes, they can fill the hospital up but there's a bunch of empty beds. Hospitals driven by profit motives, don't have a lot of empty beds because they're just empty revenue streams and they're nurses who's you know are being paid to walk empty wards well that's is inefficient in the model of capitalism. It's a, an absolute necessity when it comes to public health and the future of public health and how do we avert these various disasters but from the point of view of the profitability of the healthcare industry, it's it's inefficient. Now I mean this is why you got spectacles of China building hospitals in 10 days. An entire hospital mm. gets built in 10 days you know i mean these kinds of amazing feats that were totally necessary <laughs> yeah you know but also in the us you get these horrible scenes of like you know rented trailers serving as excess morgues and things like this you know and like mass yeah. graves in new york city and things like this because the the profit driven right. healthcare system is so brittle and in its lack of excess capacity that even a tiny surge of demand caused it, it caused it to snap pretty quickly
0: Right, and outside of the infrastructure of the hospital and the beds, there's this just-in-time staffing, where um, you don't have nursing staff capable of of, uh, 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 of addressing a surge. You have the travel nurse phenomenon, where you're paying nurses to come in from out of out of state, which create uh, unsafe conditions. You're throwing people into you know whatever fires have already been created. And then there's a pushback against those nurses making a lot of money, which is a response to the greed of the hospitals not staffing in a way to to address these surges, mm-hmm. a circular logic uh, um, that falls onto suddenly the nurses.
1: Right. I mean, this is exactly it, right? Like capitalism loves um, an unregulated or deregulated labor market until all of a sudden, right. That deregulation creates conditions in which working people can make a lot of money. And all of a yeah. sudden the costs of the business go way up. Now I understand the friction that causes within, I mean, I hear what you're saying about the friction that causes within a hospital. And like this nurse is making a tremendous amount more money because they just flew in from wherever, as opposed to this one. And that that causes all kinds of problems, but, 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 Capitalism being what it is, you know, like you want a deregulated labor market. Well, this is a deregulated labor market, and yeah, you're going to bet the capital is going to benefit from that most of the time until all of a sudden you're not, and now you're paying extravagant costs for the same labor that you had seek to drive out six months earlier. You know, I mean, it's it it, you, you can see how. You know, capital is going to get, they, they have ways of getting what they want, right? They have all of this mm-hmm. kind of leverage over not just labor markets, but the way that we think about workers and the yeah. role of workers in a society, who's supposed to do what kind of job, right? Mm-hmm. They have all kinds of ways of manipulating that force. And the idea of, a, you know, a nurse being paid, you know, <laughs> some excess wage is so- yeah. Seems so, you know. Again, I understand the tension. I right hear what you're saying about the tensions on the on the the emergency room floor. But you know, at the same time, it is it is one of those kinds of, again, the the, the dynamic contradictions that capitalism breeds within various labor markets at certain moments.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't really referring to the the social cultural tensions in the hospital. So, but that is definitely a, a real thing yeah. that you're talking about. But there was there was um, an attempt to to regulate the travel nurses uh, high like way, wage. Right. Because if, if wages are going up, we need to regulate them back downward. Uh, and then there's also like uh, fast food workers. The threat uh, of people making twenty dollars an hour in a fast food restaurant somehow threatens someone else.
1: Yeah, I mean, but this is always the argument, right? Is particularly in a consumer society, where Uh um, you know the middle class is effectively subsidized by uh, low wage workers, right? Middle class Uh existence is subsidized by low wage workers, so fast food employees, uh, low wage um, maids and janitors, you know, low wage teachers and nurses, all of this that sort of subsidize a middle class uh, consumption. Um, And and this is on a global scale, right? The low wages of workers in Mexico and in um, Indonesia, in China and elsewhere subsidizes middle class Walmart consumption. So we get cheap electronics Mm -hmm. and we get all this sort of other stuff. Fast food workers in particular, I mean, part of what goes on with them, you know, the, the idea of, you know, the fight for 15, you know, uh, of like trying to unionize fast food workers creates a situation in like, oh my God, my Big Mac is going to cost 25 cents more or whatever. Um, you know, part of it is that it's not right. It's just merely threatened, right? That McDonald's and, and Wendy's and all these other companies try and bring public pressure to, uh, to bear against attempted union drives by saying, well, you know, your frosty, the price of your frosty. If we if we have to pay these people a living wage, if we have to pay, and I mean, it, and it, it's they don't even disguise it. If we have to pay these people enough money to survive, then your Big Mac or frosty or fries are going to cost a whole twenty five cents more. Well, I mean, it, it's absurd. For the most part, people are willing to pay it. On the other hand, it's not true at all. They know that it. McDonald's knows. That if they have to raise the wage of their Big Mac, the the price of their Big Mac by like 75 cents or something like that, people are going to stop buying Big Macs. And that Mm -hmm. brings their profit margins down. So the real truth is, is that by paying people a living wage, it doesn't raise the cost of these commodities. It brings their profits down. And that's Mm -hmm. the crisis. Now- I don't happen to care about McDonald's profits. <laughs> I think they make enough money. I it's you know I mean and this is what capitalism is and does, right? Capitalism sets a basic standard of endless accumulation. It creates a world, for the first time in human history, in which it became possible to accumulate wealth on a genuinely endless scale. Now, this is of course a fallacy we live on a planet of finite resources and you cannot create endless consumption, endless accumulation, endless profitability on a finite planet. And we are running up against those limits very hard right now. And all you need to do is just recognize how hot it was this summer for us mm. to understand the stakes of that. But this is the understanding, right? Anything that's going to bring profits down of big companies, particularly when that those profits have to be distributed to ordinary people right Mm -hmm. is somehow that this is this is how you know that our society and its intellect the way we think about economics is being driven by wall street not by human need
0: and yeah i think the lesson for me of that is that i don't need to think about way upstream effects just pay attention to what is important to me in this moment in this and that is safety, uh, 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 of patients. And that is, uh, living wages for people that are making minimum wage, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And that's enough. I, that is enough. Right. I mean,
1: just because it is all interconnected and it is right. doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that like, again, you know, you're trying to start some union drive that, you know, the first, first, a- entry into some union campaign is let's start with an analysis of the global capitalist system. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's—I mean, you can do that, and it's a kind. Of, and when I, I I teach, you know, you do do those things. Like, okay, let's talk about what globe, ha- how the global capitalist system brought you your breakfast, right? Or mm. you know, what did you eat for lunch, and how does that reveal? Or, or like, let's look at the tag on the back of your shirt and where it came from, and map the global capitalist system in that way. And that's an interesting and important intellectual enterprise, right? It does make sense, right? Um, At the same time, what I think you just said, right, in terms of workplace safety, um, that's enough. That's enough. You know, that's a good enough reason to try. And just because there are all of these, you know, you caring about workplace safety, in the end, benefits patients, which benefits society, which benefits global health, and has all these enormous knock-on effects across scale, that's just a win-win, win-win. That's just a bonus, right? The, what's at stake you know, at the beginning, at the base, when you're just trying to talk to people, what do you need on your job to make you feel safe? What do you need on your job to make you feel like you're doing a good job? What do you need on your job to go home and be a good parent, a good partner, a good person? right? That's enough. That should be enough, yeah. right? That's reason enough in my sense to engage in these kinds of demands. Like You don't need Capital Volume 1 by Karl Marx chapter and verse in order to actually understand what's at stake. You just need to know what you need and why you're not getting
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. You just need to know what you need and why you're not getting it and try and figure out a way to do that. Yeah, and try and figure out a way to get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what drew you to this work? Like what drew you to the uh, academic pursuit of labor and capital?
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, part of it is, I, you know, some of it is just, I don't know. Some of it is, you know, I did, you know, like I said, I grew up uh, uh, the child of school teachers and was, I was, a I read obsessively as a child. I was obsessed with historical understandings. Uh, I still am. Um, I, I care very much about, what it means to be a teacher in this regard. I mean, my job is really to teach undergraduates, 18 to 22-year-olds, you know, um, and at the same time, like, also committed to that a, a different world is possible, right, as this slogan used to go, that, like, that there's a certain sense of responsibility for someone like myself who has the space, time, capacity, and indeed, you know, leisure to... Uh, Commit yourself to actually engaging in rigorous intellectual efforts and projects that can help people understand how the world gets made and how the world gets remade. And so, Mm -hmm. in that sense, like for me, engaging in the history, uh, labor history, the history of social movements, the history of racial justice struggles. Um, to understand the centrality of those movements to the making of democracy, to the making of the United States, to the shaping and reshaping of everyday life of the people that I live around and that I care about and who do this kind of work, it's very hard for me to just take this as a purely abstract intellectual project. You know, mm-hmm. the, when the opportunity to like take this to the next level and actually demonstrate some measure of commitment to um, social justice organizing to labor unions to uh, to occupy to you know student protests against increases in tuition uh, to Black Lives Matter to all of these sorts of things. I mean, it's it's a way in which um, I can, I, I, on the one hand, can be a resource for these organizations. In which, but at the same time, like I understand myself quite. Continuously learning from these projects, right? I mean, yes, I spend a lot of time reading books and writing, uh, uh, but I also learn from talking to union organizers, talking to people in these fields. Like, I, you learn about you know what's at stake in these fights from from the bottom up, not just from uh, you know these kinds of top down structures. So there's there's a way in which I think we come to understand the world in ways that help us understand how the world changes and can be changed that we come to understand the nature of power by learning about the ways in which ordinary people claim power they activate power they um they 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 bring it to bear in their own lives in their own worlds and those stories to me are so kind of relentlessly um, inspiring that it's kind mm-hmm. of hard not to get um, caught up in them, to, you know, to, to sort of championing, champion them. And so, you know, as a, as a scholar, uh, you know, as a researcher, you know, there, there are endless kind of intellectual traditions one can sort of find themselves in. There's all kinds of political economic theories that are broadly available to you. Um, but I tend to gravitate to the ones that see the world moving Uh, and the world changing based upon the ways in which ordinary people seek to create their own history. And I think that's what motivates me. Like um, I think that, you know, what motivates me is the under the sort of basic understanding that human beings create their own history. They just don't do so in according, you know, under conditions of their own choosing, right? We're born into a world that predates us in which we find ourselves in conflicts that are, are, that extend for generations behind us. Mm. And yet, as human beings we are we must, we create our own history no and just the how do we do this how do we go about creating our our own history and like there there are lots of different ways to do this so the the ways in which most people go about doing this is by joining into something larger than their individual selves
0: do you have any recommendations uh, uh, of books or movies or TV to kind of
1: Sure. I mean, obviously, I'm full of them. I have endless, you know, like, I mean, you
0: know, endless books, and <laughs> yeah, I got I like gobsmacking quantities of them. Um, Does that make sense as a question? Is that like the route to understanding the world a little bit better and having access to like changing that world? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, well, I think that there's lots of different ways of doing it. I mean,
1: book learning is one. Mm hmm. Right, I I don't think it's the only. I mean, it, it it was my path. That's what brought me here. Yeah. Um. But I it does. It's not necessarily everyone else's. Um. You mm-hmm. know, education is part of that path, right? I think conversation, just dialogue, become ways mm-hmm. in which people come to understand something larger than themselves. Um. You know, people seeking emergency solutions in crisis situations, right, become ways in which people uh, find and understand uh, a world that is bigger than themselves. I mean, if you want suggestions, I mean, at the really basic level there, I mean, I would give you two off the top of my head. One is quite situational, which I, I would say is, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich's book from I think 2010 called Nickeled and Dimed is still an extraordinarily good book. Um, and this is in part because Barbara Ehrenreich just died, and um, and she was a kind of major uh, influence on it. You know, a whole generation of women's healthcare workers, in particular. She wrote a, a great book with Deidre English back in the in the seventies, in the um, uh, called For Her Own Good. Uh, about the ways in which women's medicine was disrespected and uh, knowledge of women's bodies was, uh, so, you know, kind of systemically uh, exiled from um, modern medicine through the 18th, uh, 19th, and into the 20th century. Uh, she also wrote a great book about witches <laughs> and oh, wow. you know the role like midwives and witches and the hatred I, midwives, witches, and nurses. I think might even be the title of the book. Uh, it's been a very long time since I've read it, but Barbara Ehrenreich, a really kind of great thinker. Uh, in this regard. Um, Nickel and Dime was one of her later books, and it, it's a story about... Her, now, she has a PhD in biology, um, you know, and uh, came from a kind of... Her father was a coal miner, I believe, or a copper miner, um, and experienced this intense class mobility. And she, uh, you know, um, she herself got a PhD and was part of a kind of women's movement and a socialist feminist movements, um, and wrote these kind of magnificent books in the women's health uh, campaigns, but then eventually went on to... Um, write this book, Nickeled and Dimed, in which she basically went undercover at, or not even undercover, but she, she she as a middle-class white woman went out and got a low-wage job and just tried to make it work yeah. and could always sort of write about. So she ends up being like a waitress in Florida and a maid in Minnesota and or no, a maid somewhere in upstate New York, I think. And then um, it's been a while since I've read this book, but then she gets mm-hmm. a job at Walmart in Minnesota. Yeah. But it's not even about like being in working in a Walmart. It's about trying to save enough money to get a deposit on an apartment, mm-hmm. right? And the real struggles of low wage workers and like these women in the, the kind of merry maids that she works for, I, I think in Maine, um, women are going to work sick, like desperately sick because she can't. they can't afford to take the day off, you know, to lose the wages and let alone can't afford to go to a hospital right? Or go to to get a doctor. Um, These are really powerful books about the ways in which working class people often make a way out of no way and in which working class people subsidize middle class comfort and consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I would suggest, and this is a a real throwback, but you can definitely find it. It is available for free on YouTube, uh, which is a film from 1954 called Salt of the Earth. It's absolutely one of my most favorite films, Um, and it's about a miner's strike in New Mexico in the 1950s, about white and Mexican mine workers who go on strike against the company. But what it's really about is the racial and gender relationships between the miners and their wives. And so the hero of the story is actually a miner's wife. Who comes into a kind of self-realization of her own power by organizing uh, with the other wives of the striking minors? Um, it's, it's an exceptionally beautiful film. Uh, it was banned across the country when it was made in 1954. It was officially blacklisted as a film. Um, but I, I just I think, you know, every conceivable contemporary issue about race, class, and gender is somewhere explicitly presented. Uh, in this film, uh, it, from 1954, it's called Salt of the Earth. Like that. Uh, oh, if you want a movie, that's my that's my goat. That's
0: my favorite. Yeah, that's amazing. That sounds amazing. It's not about nurses, unfortunately, but, you know, Wow, I have plenty of experience. Uh, I don't need to see a movie about a nurse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think like what the what what the 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 sort of workplace drama of nursing and ho- well, I mean, there's endless, right? I mean, it's the St. elsewhere and and you know the endless TV dramas about hospitals, right? Yeah, in which the nurses are all well paid and sexy and you know yeah. sleeping with doctors and stuff like that.
0: <laughs> there's an HBO show about nurses that's uh, getting on that I haven't really seen a lot but it's you know in the same way veep is a window into the political um, machinations of america mm-hmm. um, i think that this comedy the small amount i've seen of it it, it kind of shows what it's like the living experience the living experience of being a nurse i can't remember who made the claim of like the question of like what show really gives you a look into the uh, the White House this is one of the crooked media guys who used to be speechwriters for Obama. And someone's like, What is it West Wing? Is it any of these shows? And they're like, no, it's deep. It's just a bumbling like uh, <laughs> comedy of errors. And yeah. that happens in hospitals. A comedy, like we're just trying to get through. And there's so many ways that it goes wrong that aren't catastrophes, but it's just right. making things work. Right.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's well, that's what, well, yeah. I mean, there's like medical dramas are just such a standard of um yeah. serialized television, they just have been for, I mean, like soap operas, you know, general hospitals. The soap opera was, I mean, it's probably still on for all I know, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just so many of the you know, and they, they cover every con- conceivable genre. I mean, there's one that I'm missing, I, I, I will admit to you, I I can't watch medical dramas. Like I just have yeah. never been able to watch them, <laughs> and I don't even work in hospitals. But I can't make myself watch them. So, um, for anybody who's listening, no disrespect. You, you know, you're, you you get to take your pleasure where you want your pleasure. I don't look down on them. I just can't consume yeah. them
0: myself. No, m- me me either. I wouldn't watch it. Yeah.
1: No, it's just like, why would I come home from work and then watch work? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a TV show that was on uh, a Netflix, a short a limited run series called The Chair um, that was about, you know, Sandra Oh becomes the chair of the English department at her small liberal arts university. And I, I watched like the opening 15 minutes of this and I'm like, no, that just looks like a day at work. I can't, I cannot yeah. do and of course, like every every academic on Twitter was obsessed with this show, and I'm just like, why? Aren't you, aren't yeah. you tired of your job? Don't you? Would you do it for enough hours that you have to come home and like watch it on TV too?
0: Uh, if you're looking for uh, uh, something uh, medical, the there's a documentary, a short documentary called Extre- In Extremis or Extremis, I believe. That show it was actually filmed at Highland Hospital in Oakland. Uh, shows the li- like uh, kind of vignettes uh, of people um, faced with end-of-life care in, IC- in the ICU at Highland Hospital, um, which shows kind of a look behind the curtain of like what the lived experience is uh, of facing the mortal like um, components of end-of-life care that it's easy to not pay attention to until you're faced with it and it's too late to really, I mean, then you're in a, you know, a limbic place where you can't.
1: Yeah. That, uh, that sounds intense.
0: Yeah. Necessarily (laughs) intense.
1: I mean, but this is, this is the thing. I mean, but this is part of like, you know, that these are the moments right of our lives that where we become dependent on these shockingly low wage workers, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you, when when babies are born, when people die, you know, when um, you are at this extremely, you know, the, the worst thing that has ever happened to you, you find yourself at the, at the care of someone who is grotesquely underpaid. It just it just strikes mm-hmm. me as like one of the the kind of supreme ironies of our civilization. You know that that you know exactly in that moment in which one is is facing the end of life, like. The the people who have the dedication and the the commitment and the training to do that kind of work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, this is what I'm telling you about, like when there's a nurses' strike, and you know, and people come like that. You know, the 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 response of the general public to a nurses' or a teacher's strike tells you who they are. That if you want someone to tell you who they are, talk to them about a nurses' strike and watch their response. If they're, you know, just and 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 maybe it's convenient for me because I'm just so like adamant about this point. In part because I'm I'm talking to you about it, but like. You know, I mean, but at the same time, like, it really just tells you who, you know, like, no, I, I don't care that, you know, while my, you know, my family member is dying, that they're being cared for by someone who can't afford to feed their children. That doesn't, I'm not going to think about them. Why would I think about them? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, I I, I, I you know, these are things that um, where I, I don't. Out,
0: yeah. Even outside the, the, the workers in the hospital, who's accountable for the for the poor outcomes that you mentioned earlier of the healthcare system? Is it, uh, CEOs and shareholders, or is it the poor health choices that we, that we interpret, uh, of, of the working poor who eat fast food, who ha- have stressful lifestyles?
1: I mean, all of that, again, like, you, these are all scenarios where, you know, Again, you're trying to blame somebody who anybody but the rich guy siphoning all the yeah. money off the top, right? You know why do why do poor people eat bad food? Well, that's what's in their neighborhood. That's what they yeah. that that's what they have access to: cheap, low quality, subsidized, crappy food. I mean, yeah. it, this is you know you, you you wanted the answer to that question. It's in the agriculture. Ask Nancy Pelosi every time she passes the agriculture bill. Why are we yeah. subsidizing corn syrup? you know in 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 europe they subsidize good food they subsidize wine you know <laughs> i mean other countries subsidize like far healthier food products because it keeps their population healthy in the united yeah. states we subsidize really just garbage food and so the only food that's available in the most marginalized um, impoverished neighborhoods. It's it's you know it's it's why do poor people have bad jobs and poor food? Because that's what they are subjected to, right? That's what they've been redlined into. That's what they have access to. Um, that's what they've been acculturated into. All of those kinds of things. It's not their fault. And I mean, you said it. Racism is stressful. Racism literally kills people. Racism causes heart disease. It causes diabetes. And I'm I'm not. This isn't several steps. I mean, it's just people who experience racial stress on a daily basis have heart disease, right? They have diabetes. They they suffer from obesity. I mean, it's you know, racism and poverty is a form of violence. It kills. People.
0: Absolutely, a great book on that topic, "Inflamed: The Anatomy of Injustice." I think is the full title. But inflamed is written by it was co-authored by a, a, a physician at UCSF that really goes into the consequences of, of racial and class inequality, um, and it's a beautiful book. I highly recommend.
1: Yeah, yeah, I that I I wrote that down. I, I remember seeing that when it came out. I saw an interview with them, and it struck me as like a really fruitful combination of someone who is like a physician and someone who's like a food science scholar. Like working together like in this I mean I like or that made it might even be a nurse like um you know that that I, I wrote that one down thank you yeah see I'm what was taking recommendations and tips myself Good. <laughs> I don't just hand them out I solicit them as well thank you
0: <laughs> uh well I'm gonna be respectful of your time i, I really I'm re- I really thank you for for taking the time to talk to me uh we just scratched the surface but I, I've I I had a great conversation at the end of these interviews. I ask about a recommendation. So I already asked a recommendation, a a book, movie, um, TV or whatever, but that's on the, on the, that was on the topic of of your work, but just in general, like what you do in your spare time, what you, what you consume in your, like, is there anything that you're just loving?
1: Well, you know, I, 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 I have a dog, that makes me very yeah.
0: happy. got <laughs> <laughs> like, a dog. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I love my dog and the uh, the uh, the dog parks in the the East Bay. Um, yeah. Because I, I I live in Berkeley, and the, so like there's a great dog infrastructure. Um, I I love my bicycle. I like riding my bicycle. I'm I'm you know I'm i the the, the the enthusiastic, you know, strictly keep to myself old guy fan of uh, bike party. Which we do in the East Bay, um, you know, there's like East Bay Bike Party. We just find them on Instagram. Join us. Like we do big, like group bike rides in the middle of the night every on the second Friday of a month. Um, It's just pure joy to ride a bicycle at night with a bunch of people. You know, towing sound systems makes me very happy. <laughs> I, I, I do. I just kind of g- deeply love that. You know, and I think that. You know i think like those you know my dog my family my bicycle those are things that definitely keep me alive i mean i i, I read constantly i'm always consuming things yeah. um but you know i've already given you the titles of books so i'll 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 stop with that but like that's beautiful yeah you know the, the trying to yeah i the mind is always moving so sometimes it's you gotta move the body as well so yeah i learned that i think from horse somewhere
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> perfect Awesome, thank you so much.
1: Certainly, my pleasure.